Prior to the 1950s in the U.S., taking us way back, we didn't have an interstate highway system. And there was a huge investment made in the 50s in particular to build out an interstate highway system that then connected a variety of different communities, states across the continent. I think we're, we're in a similar place with construction in that we're still laying down the, the very basic infrastructure to allow, in this case, data and information to flow more seamlessly. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Bricks and Bytes podcast, your go-to for all things construction and property technology. On today's show, we have Scott Ellison. Scott is a strategy consultant, advisor, and investor in construction tech companies. In this episode, we talk about Scott's personal connection to our industry, the impact of broad technology in the built world, the need of better infrastructure in the construction tech, go-to-market strategies, and many more. Before we dive in, Shout out to our sponsor, Beta. If you want to connect with some of the biggest players in the construction tech world, including tier one building contractors, some of the biggest tech companies, investors, and advisors, check them out by visiting www.t-beta.com. And this is www.the-beta.com. You are listening to Bricks and Bytes Podcast where we take you on a journey in construction, technology, and business. All right, let's get this episode started. So Scott, you have a very impressive background. Can you give us a quick overview of how you got to where you are today? Yeah, so I don't come out of construction professionally. My connection, and I'll circle back to it, um, is more a personal one. My early training was as a strategy consultant uh, working for senior executives at uh, high-tech companies. I had the opportunity to join a, a small growth equity firm and stayed there, grew there um, as the firm grew. And then the, the firm shifted more towards doing buyout work, which can be lucrative, but is a different flavor of work than, than growth and venture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I took a couple, I had the, I had the flexibility to take a couple of years off. I traveled the world, um, did a bunch of fly fishing, which is one of my passions, uh, and got a pilot's license, which is something I'd always wanted to do. And then I've been here in Silicon Valley, which is, I live uh, just north of San Francisco with our family, investing, advising, consulting to a variety of, of companies in the tech world. The connection to construction and what I think of as built tech, which uh, for me is the full continuum from design to construct to operate, is more a personal one. So I have a couple of uncles who are general contractors, uh, retired now, but growing up were general contractors, father-in-law, brother-in-law who are uh, in the industry. And one of my favorite jobs growing up uh, was working in a hardware store, which was before the Home Depot days where the hardware store was a, a general contractor supply store. I loved that environment, loved the people, just always had an interest in the sector. Was excited to see a few years ago some of the trends that all of us know about, smartphones, ubiquity of smartphones, um, cloud and SaaS. We can get into how those potentially impact technology distribution and consumption. But uh, started noticing some of those changes that were actually taking hold slower than in other sectors, but taking hold nonetheless, have over time come to 
believe that there's a, an extraordinary opportunity over the next decade. It's not going to happen overnight. Then people working on it you know, for a decade plus, if you go back and look at the plan grid team, um, one of the first. But even those who have been in Constructec for a while would say that we're only in the second inning of what can and needs to be done. So it's going to be an exciting decade ahead. <laughs> nice. Sounds good. Get me excited. Are we talking about like a software development within construction tech or more on the hardware side? I think it's both. But I'll say that my focus is has been more on the, the software and, the, and software infrastructure, in part because I think that has to happen first in order to fully appreciate the benefits that we can get from new ways of capturing information, whether it's robotics or drones, new ways of working. This is a bit of a, a, a U.S.-centric metaphor, but I, in some ways, prior to the 1950s in the U.S., taking us way back, we didn't have an interstate highway system, right? And there was a huge investment made in the 50s in particular to build out an interstate highway system that then connected a variety of different communities, states across the continent. I think we're, we're in a similar place with construction in that we're still laying down the, the very basic infrastructure to allow, in this case, data and information to flow more seamlessly. If you had, back in 1950, gone out and tried to raise money to build hotels and motels off exits, people would have looked at you weird and said, what's an exit? Because they didn't, we didn't have the actual basic infrastructure in place. Now we do, and now that's enabled considerable economic growth. I, and I think, uh, you know, in, the, in construction in particular, there's a challenge of data islands and data pockets and disparate data that's not connected in a way that can turn into information that can then turn into insights. And so until we get that part fixed first, and a lot of people are working on it, we won't be able to benefit from some of the really exciting stuff are benefit to the same degree, not to say that it's not worth it to, to work on that. And there's some really exciting innovation that's happening in robotics and drones and elsewhere. Mm, nice. Can you elab elaborate a little bit on the data islands and the data pockets uh, term? What do you mean by this? So it's a combination um, of two things. One is, despite the reputation of the industry, the industry has um, adopted technology before specifically information technology. The industry's been adopting technology and new ways of doing things for hundreds, if not thousands of years, right? But specifically on information technology, there was a wave about 20 years ago across a variety of sectors that we all know about, which was adoption of client-server technology, right? And so that hit construction in, in certain ways. But what it ended up doing is it's created these pockets of data that in some cases companies have uh, done a good job of integrating but in many other cases there's data that's that's isolated sitting in in different pockets in different islands that's not flowing and therefore it's difficult uh, to turn into information when you combine that with the fact that most of the technology even over the last decade that's been adopted has been point solutions, there are exceptions to this, of course, but 
When you have uh, point solutions adopted, you end up again creating data islands where there's a lot of potentially a lot of data being collected, but it's isolated and it's not flowing to create insights in, in other parts of the business. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah. Okay. So um, moving on to the juicy subject, which is go to market in built tech. So can you give us a overview of your views of go-to-market in the built tech? Yeah, I guess I'll start by saying I think it's the most important thing that a startup can work on and figure out. I think if you get uh, go-to-market right, you can mess up a bunch of other things and you'll still be okay. As a startup, as an emerging company, if you don't get go-to-market right, it doesn't matter how great your technology is. Uh, in this sector, you're not going to have a business for very long. <laughs> I don't think that's breaking any news to anyone, but it's easy to lose sight of that, particularly for companies that have technology as a part of their DNA, as a part of their platform, as a part of their offering. It's not the tech, it's the tool. And the companies that emerge over the next decade to take advantage of the opportunity are going to be the ones, I believe, that not only recognize that, but bake into the DNA of their company um, the importance of it. So the other important thing about GTM is that it's different in construction. And I would say in the built world, broadly speaking, different from, again, I'm, I'm in Silicon Valley, different from fintech and enterprise SaaS and certainly crypto, but pretty much every sector that Silicon Valley... Don't say that with Martin on the podcast. Yeah, that Silicon Valley <laughs> has funded and gets excited about. And there's so there's a wealth of information about go-to-market and have even been some true innovations in go-to-market, specifically around product-led growth over the last decade that have created enormous value in certain sectors. But because of some of the unique aspects of construction, you can't just download the playbook from Twitter and apply it in construction and think that it's going to work. Mm-hmm. If you do, you're going to end up, in, as I say, in the side of, at the side of the road in a ditch, right? Your company's not going to go anywhere. So it's not to say there aren't concepts from some of those other sectors and from product-led growth, even on the software side, that can be useful. But they need to be tempered and mixed with some of the unique aspects of, of construction. Mm-hmm. You said that in built tech, that the tech is only table stakes. So can you just elaborate on what you mean by that? Yeah, just, uh, I mean, it's, it's a poker metaphor, right? And the idea is that for those who know the, the World Series of Poker or, or really any tournament, there are table stakes to actually get into the game, but it's not enough. Whatever you're putting down as table stakes is not going to win you the tournament. And so... It's another way of of thinking about this idea that, yes, tech's important, but it's not everything. Mm -hmm. And yes, technology is a a fundamental aspect of many startups. But unless you're thinking every day, all the time about how does this technology help my customers do a better job than they've done historically? And again, they've been doing the job historically, right? We've been building buildings um, for a long time. Whether it's been as efficient as it could be, you know, is, is an open question. But people have been getting the job done, have been solving problems. So the technology's got to solve problems or deliver value in a new way. 
that's the table stakes versus actually playing the game. Yeah, it makes sense. And does it is that like a do you think that's a theme in other like let's say tech industries as well? Because what I'm reading into that is that it's like tech is actually a small part of the of the business model and strategy and whatnot. Whereas in you go to like finance or something, actually technology plays a much bigger part in that business in terms of their impact and let's say success. Perhaps. You know, I think the things that I'm saying wouldn't be dramatically different in in other sectors. This idea that it's not just about developing interesting technology, but it's about building a business, if that's what you choose to do. There are other venues, obviously, for focusing entirely on the technology or entirely on the innovation. It's called the academy, right? That's what happens in university systems, colleges, and that's really important as well. But if you as an an individual are saying, I want to be an entrepreneur, I want to build a company, then there's this other layer that has to be as important as this technology. Yeah, so you mentioned that there's no playbook in the construction tech that people can apply within the construction tech uh, in terms of go-to-market strategies. Is there any like a case study or an example that you'd like to share of the examples of go-to-market strategies within construction? So operators, entrepreneurs can look up or check and or think think through? Yeah, I'll, I'll say that one of the reasons that I'm excited about this sector, about being involved uh, with the sector, is that there's the opportunity to write the playbook, the go-to-market playbook. So it's not that if you're an entrepreneur in fintech, sure, you're going to be innovating, but people have been innovating there for a decade. And so you're going to end up borrowing a, a bunch of stuff that um, that works, tweaking it, of course. But in this sector, nobody's written the playbook yet. <laughs> and, and in fact, it's going to be a process. It's not that somebody's just going to drop the playbook tomorrow and everyone's going to you know, download it and the problem will be solved. This is a, a work in progress, which is one of the reasons that I think if I were an entrepreneur early in my career, thinking about starting a company, and I hear this from really talented entrepreneurs, there's an excitement about the fact that there isn't a playbook yet, that there's some ideas mm-hmm. that a bunch of us kick around, but um, it's still a work in progress. My money's on you, Scott, to write this playbook. <laughs> so Scott, can we talk more about strategies now? You mentioned PLG, which as I understand, stands for product-led growth, and is broken down into three areas, product-led, project-led, and problem-led. So could we start with product-led? Yeah, and just to take a a quick step back, um, product-led growth is a strategy that uh, has come to the forefront over the past decade. Most on the call who are familiar with the startup uh, ecosystem, Silicon Valley, writ large, not as a geography, but as an idea, would have come across product-led growth, PLG, in... uh, you know, in, in various conversations around go-to-market. It has been the engine, the growth engine behind many, if not most, of the particularly software companies, SaaS companies, that have emerged over the last decade. So names like Snowflake and Figma and Slack. And it's likely that if there's a company that has emerged in the SaaS space or software space over the last decade, they have had some sort of product-led growth flavor to their go-to-market engine. Now, your savvy listeners will, of course, be saying, well, construction is different 
um, for a number of different reasons, including that it's not all software, of course. But uh, the idea behind the three PLGs, which is a framework that I started working on last fall in conjunction with Diana Swenton at uh, Suffolk, Suffolk Boost, in large part, just to put some sort of structure around the go-to-market discussion that is critical in this space, as we've alluded to uh, in prior questions, but is probably the most important aspect of building a company in construct tech and, and build tech writ large. So there's a lot of information for entrepreneurs in other sectors around product-led growth. Any, any of your viewers, listeners can uh, do a quick Google search and come up with an extensive list of materials and resources for thinking about product-led growth, PLG. But the idea in extending that to the three PLGs, um, just to uh, coin a phrase, I, I suppose, was to capture some of the unique dynamics of, about construction. So to talk about the fact that it's not enough, that, that while product-led growth, the traditional PLG, can add certain um, aspects that could be useful for a construction uh, tech company, that in itself is, is not only not enough, but will likely take you in the wrong direction if you don't include some of the aspects that are unique to construction. So the idea was that with project-led growth and then problem-led growth, that those two additional categories would capture some of the, the aspects that are unique to construction. Got it. So they're essentially like, uh, like you can have product-led growth at the top of the triangle and then problem-led and project-led kind of underpin that. Or is it not quite a triangle structure? Is it more like a circular thing where all three are as important? I've been thinking about it as uh, three overlapping Venn diagram circles, right? So it's not that uh, you have to pick, become a, pro a project-led growth company or problem-led or traditional product-led. It's that each one of those categories offers certain techniques and solutions that an individual company can choose from. To use a, an American-centric metaphor, uh, it's like uh, an American football team has a number of different types of plays that it can run, running plays, passing plays, hybrids of those. And it's not that one team may emphasize one over the other, but in almost all cases, teams are using, are selecting plays from each category to create their own playbook and go to market. I should also say that, again, this is, uh, this is all a work in progress. And I think it's key to have as many people contributing as, as possible. The sector is relatively early. And the more conversation, I, I thought of this, and Diana, I think, would concur, thought about this effort broadly as, as one to spark a conversation, to create a conversation, to encourage a conversation, because the topic is, is so important. Mm, and, it's, and it's quite broad as well. And like you say, getting it right is so important that there's got to be a lot of things you consider, perhaps, and try before you get it perfect. And on the project-led growth front, 
I mean, that's an important point too. It's it's an iterative process, and every company is going to develop their their own solution. But sometimes frameworks can can be helpful in catalyzing thinking and in catalyzing different approaches. And there won't be one playbook for construct tech, but there there may be over time, and and some companies have already been successful in different aspects of this. Fieldwire, for example, is probably a great example of a company that has used pieces um, from each of these groupings, but in particular has been has been clever and smart about the project-led growth aspect. Mm, yeah, and project-led. So project-led is is touching on like uh, the fact that each project is an individual. So you're selling a solution to that project. Is that right? It's a nod to the fact that construction is a project-driven industry by its very nature, right? Which, for those who are in the sector, may not seem like a big deal, but it's very different from many other sectors in which those other sectors, your go-to-market cadence is typically going to have, beyond the the product-led growth aspect, it's going to have some sort of outreach and strategy for enterprise sales. In construction, each individual project is typically run, if not a distinct P&L, it's thought of that way by the individuals who are responsible for it. Uh, and even in the largest GCs, it, they're ultimately a roll-up of many projects that get to the, the larger effort in a GC. So it's an acknowledgement of the fundamental way that the industry works and a nod to the fact that as we know, in any industry, you have to meet your customer where they are, um, speaking their language and thinking about things in the, in the way that they do uh, in order to help deliver a, a solution that is, is both valuable for them and, and that in turn they'll pay for. The other aspect of project-led that I think is, a, is, is valuable to underline, and again, for folks that are in the industry, they'll, they'll recognize this immediately, but... You may, in your go-to-market activities as a, as a construct tech startup, you may actually get as much synergy within a region across companies as you do within a particular general contractor or, or, or a distinct entity. So that's a different dynamic from, from other sectors because you'll have individuals that by word of mouth are talking about the solutions that they're implementing on projects that are within a region across companies. So that that peer group driven word of mouth or conversations can end up being critical in the space. Okay, cool. I, I'd like quite like to maybe just tap in on problem leg growth because just this is just a personal experience thing again. And it's really that uh, I find a lot of time people are so focused on the technology and the customer honestly doesn't really care if you're using blockchain or artificial intelligence to do yada da da da. They're just like, does it solve my problem? Yes or no? Exactly. Like, I don't care if you're using, I don't know, a hamster running around on a wheel. If it does what it needs to do, then happy days. That's all I want. Yeah. This hit home for me. We, lo- we lost a tree on our property about a year ago and we had to hire someone to come out with uh, a stump digger, specific piece of machinery, you know, to help pull the tree out of the ground. And it struck me that that when they showed up at our house, if they had said, 
Scott, we have this incredible new hammer that is cloud connected and that can do AI on how you're actually using it and make suggestions about <laughs> how to be more efficient with it. I would have said, guys, you're actually talking to the right person about this because I'm really interested, but I have to get that stump out of the ground. <laughs> and that's irrelevant to me. Right now. <laughs> what can you do about it? That's, you know, that uh, that's said facetiously, but it's it's often, I think, it's a trap that that is easy to fall into as a startup entrepreneur. I love the story. Great. Maybe if you can just explain what is respect to disrupt ratio. So uh, there's respect to disrupt ratio. I was alluding to that before. It's just a, a heuristic that I've latched onto over time to try to capture this idea that as a startup, we're disrupting or, or an entrepreneur, you're disrupting. You're changing something about the industry by definition. But particularly in construction, if you're not balancing that with an equal dose of respect for particular ways that work is done, um, particularly processes that are in place, whether you think they're the right processes or not. And in many cases, you know, coming into a new industry from the outside, it's pretty easy to say, here are 10 things that this sector should do better. And it's so obvious. Why aren't they doing these things? Some of those you can disrupt. Others, you just have to say, hey, that's how it is. And for now, I'm going to focus on the piece that I know I can change and then worry about the rest of it later or not at all. If in 10 years, it's still being done that way, even if I think it, there's a more efficient way to do it. As long as I've introduced the change that I know I can introduce, I'm going to have a successful company and I'll have positively changed the industry. Gotcha. So everything in the right time. Yeah, I think uh, others have called it gentle disruption. Mm. One of the CEOs uh, I work with talks about it that way. It sounds good. It has a good term. Um, okay, so setting up a strategy for a startup. So what levels and stages do advisors get involved? And is there like a universal holy grail of how strategy consultants could approach a startup? Two questions. I'll take the strategy consultant piece first. I, I don't in any way, I value my experience in training as a in the early couple of years out of undergrad, but I don't in any way think that you either need that or that it's necessarily the right way to approach thinking about building companies. Two by twos, the famous two by twos can be interesting, but they're certainly not the, the way to unlock building a sustainable, interesting company. So I, I guess I would say that in, in terms of getting involved with startups, there are a variety, of course, of ways to do that and a number of different stages that can make sense depending on individuals' particular interest or aptitudes. I'm fortunate to get involved with companies at a pretty early stage, often pre-seed, and when they're still thinking about their go-to-market, still thinking about their even their product in many cases. But there's an equal need for individuals to, uh, to get involved with companies throughout their lifespan. And particularly in this sector, in construction, I think there's a lot of value to having people who have been in the industry and are in the industry providing advice, perhaps being an advisor to a particular startup that you have a connection with and, and a good working relationship with an entrepreneur. Uh, that's something that 
startups need is that hmm. that sounding board of someone who's on the ground, who's actually solving the problems one way or another and can say, hey, listen, you have this piece of technology and it has a, a few different use cases, but let me tell you the one that I think would be really helpful and that would generate help generate revenue for you. So in terms of uh, advising uh, startups in this way, do you think it is necessary for people from other industries to do so or people from construction industry? Is it feasible for someone who is ingrained within construction to advise in this way or there is a need for people from other industry to do so because i find that construction is quite within its rail and difficult to disrupt because people used to do things in certain way and obviously products of construction are tangible buildings which are expensive and that anything which is done in a different way it costs a lot of money so any mistakes are costly mistakes um, so how do we approach approach the change within construction? I think there's value that can be brought both by people from outside the industry as well as those with extensive experience in the industry. There are challenges that both each of those groups have to wrestle with. If you're coming from the outside of the industry, you have to have, I, I alluded to this empathy muscle, this idea that let's say you've spent a decade in fintech or some other sector you better not think that you can just roll into construction and do the same thing. Or this gets back to the respect disrupt, right? That there are some things that as an outsider coming into the industry, you might say, why are they doing it this way? There's such an, a better way to do it. <laughs> yeah. But there's almost always a reason why it's being done that way. So really appreciating the underlying logic, the underlying motivation for how things are done is the challenge for people coming in from outside the industry. For those inside the industry, there's the obvious challenge of saying, it's almost uh, thinking ahead to what the vision could be as opposed to being trapped in how things are done currently, right? It's saying, yes, I, th I know that we have done things this way for decades, but I also see ways that can improve. It's a delicate balance, right? Because on one hand, I'm saying respect. On the other hand, I'm saying disrupt. Yeah. And the companies that do it right over the next decade are going to find that balance. And the, the balance might be a little different depending on the, the individual company or depending on the individual technology application. But that's where the art's going to come in, in terms of building a, a really successful company over the next decade. Totally agree. I can just... Uh picture the face on some of the foremen that I used to work with on site, like especially some of the older ones when someone new from another industry comes in and tries to give them a piece of technology and they're like, what the is this? Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not using that. Like the, just the arrogance and like uh, resilient. Unwillingness. Yeah, unwillingness to, to want to use it. It was like, it's a, it paints a funny picture in my head and I, I think it's probably still quite relevant today. That's changing too though, right? Demographics are undefeated. Father time is undefeated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Folks who, if, if you're Gen X or younger, you grew up in a digital world. Nobody has to explain to you why paper is less efficient than a, a well-constructed digital solution. And it has to be well-constructed. Otherwise, you end up with those data islands that we referred to earlier, <laughs> yeah. right? Which can cause more problems. I, 
I like to say that the only thing worse than an analog process is a partially digitized one, right? Where you think that you're generating value by digitizing something, but you end up just making it worse and gumming up the gears. <laughs> yeah. I, look, I'd also say that there are folks in the older demographic who appreciate the fact that change needs to happen, that change can happen, and see the opportunity for a lot of the things that that are happening and will happen. So there's resistance to change no matter where you are, no matter what sector you're in. And the question is, is the change that you as a company or as an entrepreneur are proposing, is that an improvement or is it just change? Mm, that's a very good point. Yep, that is a good point. I just wanted to pick your brain, Scott, on early stage investing. So you are involved in Boost, uh, which is a startup accelerator. You're also an advisor in Headwaters Advisory. So in terms of early stage investing, what are the key metrics that early stage investors look at when investing in uh, startups in built environment? So on one hand, it's no different from other sectors. It's um, identifying individuals, entrepreneurs who have a compelling vision and who have the capacity or at least judged capability to bring that vision to fruition. It's an extraordinary adventure um, to build a company, to see a future that other people don't see. And that's actually probably the easiest part. But then to actually create that future takes a, a skill set and characteristics in an individual that are rare. So that's true no matter what sector you're talking about. The thing that I would add in, in construction is this for lack of a better term, the, the empathy muscle that I talk about. So I'm not a believer that you have to come out of construction in order to start a company in the sector. But I am a believer that if you don't, you better have some sort of, some sort of driving passion or reason why you're interested in the sector and actually solving the problems that we've talked about all the way through, as opposed to just spinning up some interesting technology and hoping that you'll be able to sell it for a few hundred million dollars in, in a couple of years. That latter path is destined to fail. But if you combine some of those core capabilities that everyone looks for in entrepreneurs, regardless of sector, with a, either experience in construction or a demonstrated passion and, and empathy muscle for understanding the sector, that's ultimately what I think, and um, I'm not alone in saying this, that will define who the entrepreneurs are that break out over the next decade. Mm -hmm. Just out of curiosity, you mentioned uh, individuals, entrepreneurs who are kind of the, the cornerstone of, of a business, of a good startup. So what is most important in a founder or the idea? An age-old question. Or the go-to-market strategy. I'll just throw that in there. <laughs> Often framed as... In a horse race, are you betting on the jockey or the horse? The jockey being the individual, the horse being the idea. Particularly at the early stage, and um, this is an idea that gets debated constantly, I would say that the earlier you go in terms of investing, you know, particularly at the angel and pre-seed level, it's all a, a jockey bet. Mm -hmm. Yes, the horse matters. I mean, the, the, 
jockey can't be running alongside you know other horses without a horse but the jockey matters a lot more because a, a great jockey is going to even if the horse that they started on is is not very good they'll figure out a way somehow to either change horses now we start mixing the metaphor but (laughs) (laughs) you can't jump off halfway through the race (laughs) jump onto a new horse or still figure out a way even without the fastest horse to make it through the crowd uh to the end Mm -hmm. nice yeah on on that note something that just came to mind and i saw a video pop up earlier actually was um are you familiar with the adam newman story i think he was the founder of we work right now he's we work he's now starting something called flow broadly speaking yeah Sounds like that is because someone's just given him like it's a Horowitz or someone's given him like crazy amount of money to go and build that new thing he's building. So that's a prime example of betting on the jockey, not the horse, because I see a lot of comments on LinkedIn about the new idea that is just like, he's got no idea what he's doing. He's obviously never done this, blah, 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 but who knows? Yeah. And it's not to say that the horse doesn't matter. Part of the idea of why the jockey is important is you're you're not just betting on you know, a future Nobel Prize winner. You're betting on someone that, yes, has technology capabilities or whatever it might be in terms of the entrepreneurial exercise that they're in, but also has the ability to understand how the race is developing, understand whether that the horse that they picked at the beginning was the right one or not. And if it's not, then to quickly change horses, right? So it's, it's not to say that the idea doesn't matter. You know, whether in the example you cite, whether they're successful or not will depend far less on what they're currently saying about what they'll do and far more on whether they execute. So that we'll see. Yeah. Uh, So still touching on the ideas, technologies within the construction tech sector, as an advisor and mentor within the accelerator, do you see any ideas or technologies that are very interesting in construction tech? I see so many interesting ideas that one of the hardest things to do is figure out where to spend your time. (laughs) And I don't envy you doing that. Yeah. And it's across a continuum. Remember, I'm looking at things from the design and architectural world through to construction and then into building operations. Um, It is so exciting to see what's happening now and to see things that the broader world is is not aware of yet because they're so early. But both in terms of the, the quality of entrepreneurs who are planting their flag in these sectors and saying, I'm, I'm going to work on this and I'm going to dedicate a decade of my life to solving this particular problem or generating this particular product and company. So it, it's a, a time in the industry. We'll see. Maybe we're all drinking the Kool-Aid or maybe those of us who are bullish on construct tech are missing the boat and 10 years from now people will still be saying look at all the change that's uh possible but yeah because of some of the the broader macro trends that i talked about before i think they're not every company is going to be successful but i think there are going to be some definitional ones created over the next decade okay um so let's have a little bit of fun with the next question and what we want you to do is answer these questions in one word and we might ask you to elaborate if the one word is really like really interesting or, or funny. So what key pieces of advice would you give to a company in the built tech, construction tech, start world in relation to hiring? Slow. Go slow. Mm. Okay. Firing? Fast. 
<laughs> I was going to say it. <laughs> Very good. And by by the way, just to elaborate on that, in terms of firing fast, that's not some punitive suggestion to entrepreneurs. It's just that you have to move so quickly. In a lot of cases, you may think that someone is the right fit for your startup or for a particular position within your startup. And you might be wrong. And so just, but admitting that both to yourself and to the individual is the right thing to do, both for your company and for them. Mm -hmm. Okay. How about marketing? I'd say empathy. If I've used that word before, but I think that's as important in marketing as anything else. It's it's the core of understanding your customer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nice. Uh, how about growth? Exciting. That's why we're all here. Mm -hmm. Sure. And one last one. We'll go with finance. Necessary. Okay. Whether the money comes from your customers, if you're bootstrapping, from investors or from both. Some people would say it's a necessary evil. Uh, whether you attach evil to necessary or not is, you know, up, up to the individual. But it's, uh, it's the lifeblood of a company. We're all, everyone's experiencing that right now, that uh, if, you, if you don't have the cash, if you don't have the financing, it's going to be pretty hard to bring even the greatest idea uh, to fruition. All right, Scott, uh, have you got any thoughts on how to attract uh, top talent to the construction tech or in general in con to construction industry? Because construction is uh, not regarded as a sexy industry and um, there's a labor shortage, skill set shortage. What are your thoughts on this? Couple, a few things, but, but two in particular. One's a US-centric perspective, which is that for the last 20, arguably the last 30 years, individuals who are of or graduating our high school heading on to university have taken on extraordinary levels of debt to, in some cases, pursue degrees that didn't take them a whole lot farther than they could have gone with their high school degree. And they end up saddled with a lot of debt that has an influence on decisions that they make the, the rest of their career. Because of that, there's a, a small but growing appreciation for other alternatives, whether it's the trades, other paths in construction or the built world, that the youngest generation, the, the Gen Z generation, is starting to appreciate in a way that um, didn't exist before. So it's not that that's going to solve the challenge, which is a real one and is a global one. But there's another piece to it, I think, which is, and, and this is more of a, a global concept. It applies anywhere, Asia, Europe, US, Australia. And it's this idea that some of the technology that we're talking about and some of this technology that's yet to be developed will change what it means to be uh, a worker, a supervisor, someone involved in construction. I'll give one example. There's a company that is still young, but is really exciting. They went through uh, the Su Suffolk Boost program a couple of years ago that is developing a robotic solution for installing drywall. And that work historically has been very challenging. The workers that were installing drywall were wearing masks long before COVID, right? Um, it's a dirty job. It can be a stressful job. And this company, and I, there, there are others, I think, that are also working on technology for this particular application, has the promise of changing that job to one of being a robot driver. And that's not going to happen overnight. 
you know, and even 10 years from now, there's still going to be people that are installing drywall the traditional way. Mm-hmm. But as it's one example of things that can happen, and there are other applications for robotics and being a drone pilot and a variety of other things that I think will, will over time shift what it means to be a worker in construction in a positive way. And also, I mean, the other piece that's connected to that is that as the industry continues to adopt even basic technology related to smartphones and some of the general work processes that we described before, it will be a more welcoming environment for people who are used to doing everything on their phone digitally, as opposed to saying, hey, if you're going to work here, you got to do it our way. And our way is paper and pencils and binders, you know, in the back of construction trailers. I think there's, uh, by virtue of working on the processes in the industry and digitizing some of them, that'll end up creating an environment that's more welcoming to the next generation that's coming into the sector. Agree. I like it. So what, what trends, what, what do you think is hot right now in, in the build tech world to, and in perhaps 2023? Despite the fact that I spent a lot of time with early stage companies, I'm not, a, I actually am a little allergic to hot trends. <laughs> it typically means that something has already gone past the point where it's investable, meaning it's, it's a good idea for a startup. Mm-hmm. And it also ends up creating a lot of challenges for startups when you're in a hot, a, an, an air quotes, hot sector. We've seen, don't have to disparage any other sectors. People can, I'm sure there are examples jumping to mind of places that two years ago were considered, quote, hot, that now are not. So with that as a caveat, I'm a huge believer, as I've, I've mentioned throughout, you know, this discussion of the opportunities. And what I think is is hot is, the the remarkable opportunity to contribute to the change of a multi-trillion dollar industry in a way that hasn't been done arguably in a century since we started building high rises again. That to me is is a pretty hot idea. And it's not an idea that's going to be overnight, but it's exciting to think about the changes that can be made in this sector over the long term, over the next decade, and what the world might look like in 2033. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, great. Scott, is there anything else that you would like to would like us to discuss or anything that you would like to mention? No, I, I appreciate you guys uh, having me on. And it's, uh, it's an area that I'm passionate about, excited about, and love to chop it up and, and talk about both the opportunity as well as the challenges in how we make things better over the next decade. Mm-hmm. Okay, we got a few um, off-topic questions then for you now. And uh, one thing you said, which which really interested me, was the fact that you got a pilot's license. So, yeah, why? What made you decide to do that? It was just a personal interest. Uh, my parents used to tell me that uh, when I was two, I went to the airport and said that, I'd be flying a plane, one of those planes one day. <laughs> and my license is, uh, it, it's for small planes. Mm-hmm. Could eventually graduate to, to larger ones, but um, 
yeah, it was just a, it, it was one of those, I suppose, bucket list items that I'd always wanted to do. It's something that, um, it's not only exciting, but you learn a lot about the world around you, as it were. All right. So one from me. So I, reading through your LinkedIn, so you did fly fishing on six continents and in remote regions from Brazil to Venezuela to Pacific to the edge of Siberia. Wow. What's your best place, spot in the world and why? If I could pick one place to go back to, it actually wouldn't be any of the ones that you mentioned, although those were extraordinary experiences. I'd probably pick the Chilean Andes in the uh, central part of Chile, which is just a, a stunningly beautiful spot with incredible trout fishing. But whether it's an exotic place or, or somewhere closer to home, I just, I love getting out into into the outdoors. Um, fishing for me is, is more of an excuse to hike in beautiful places. Yeah, that sounds so good. Like it's like peak kind of winter in the UK now and the thought of the outdoors in the sun, it's like, oh, seems like a world away, but hey, sounds good. Around the corner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just coming. Yeah, a few months. <laughs> yeah. What would you say, Scott, is the like top skill that anyone should possess in the world of like entrepreneurship and business? That's a good one. Uh, passion for learning and ability to learn. Mm -hmm. You have that and that has ripple effects through everything. As an entrepreneur, you have to learn, right? There's no entrepreneur who rolls in and not only is an expert in technology, but also in accounting and also in finance and also in marketing and sales. There's nobody I, I know of, unless they've built a company before, who starts with that. So if you don't have that, that passion and ability to learn, um, it's going to be challenging. Okie dokie. Scott, thank you very much. Uh, if people would like to reach out to you, where they can find out more about you? Yeah, probably uh, LinkedIn is probably the easiest. Feel free to drop me a message there. And uh, you know, I'm hap happy to chat with any and everyone I, that has a similar passion for helping to change and improve uh, an industry that is so critical. It's, it's fundamental to the global economy and to the way we all live. Awesome. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Bricks and Bytes podcast. If you are enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate it. And we'll catch you in the next episode.